Hello friends, welcome back to the Earthly Delights podcast. It's very rare that you come across someone like Rianne. Her ability to speak about death, grief and bereavement in such an honest and open manner made this difficult conversation profoundly memorable and inspiring. In this hour, Rianne tells us about the passing of her son and her husband in the same week, how the initial days and weeks unfolded and the process of post-traumatic growth which contributed towards the establishment of the bereavement charity to wish upon a star. Rianne provides a perspective on bereavement that we haven't fully explored on the podcast before and certainly facilitates some catharsis for myself and I hope for you guys. We've provided links below for Rianne's charity if you'd like to learn more about her work. We really appreciate her giving us her time and thanks for listening guys. Hello everybody welcome back to the podcast. This week we have Rianne Mannings MBE. What's the crack, Rianne? Thanks for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me, Jim and Seb. Thanks for having me. Real pleasure. Like, <clears throat> very much looking forward to this. And I, <clears throat> I'll tell you, even this is one of the first few podcasts where my dad was asking me, Oh, make sure you ask the guest this question. Um, but before we get there. <laughs> no, <laughs> before, okay. Yeah. Exciting. <laughs> yeah. Before we get there, we, for, for listeners maybe that are not familiar with your story and, and your life, uh, is it possible for you to give us a kind of synopsis or a summary, please? Yeah, of course. Um, so um, I live in Wales, hence the accent, and very passionate about uh, the Welsh people, the Welsh communities. Um, and back in 2012, I was a PE teacher. That's all I'd ever done was teach children. Absolutely loved it. It was my, you know, my passion at the time. Um, I was married to Paul and had three children. Holly was three, Isaac was two, and George was one. So it was a quite a chaotic household, as you can imagine. Wow. Um, I'd been to school, a normal working day, um, and that evening our worlds came crashing down when our youngest son, George, fell ill very suddenly at home. He was rushed to the hospital, local, um, but sadly within two hours of being admitted, George passed away. Um you know, how do you accept that after he was laughing and smiling at me literally minutes before he, he fell ill? Mm-hmm. The next few days are a blur. We have an amazing family. I live in an incredible community. Um, everyone did what they could, but, you know, we'd lost our little boy and there was just no, there was just no support offered to us from anyone professional. It was, it was down to just local support, really. Okay. Um, and on the fifth day after losing George, um, what well, I could never have imagined it happening, my beautiful husband, my best friend, walked out of the home, traumatised by what we'd been through a few days earlier, and, and he took his own life, um, leaving me with a three and a two-year-old and so many questions that I'll never, never get answered, really. The, uh... So life's been, you know, life's been really difficult, as you can imagine. But, um, you know, it's nine years now, 10 years next year. So um, a big one for us as a family. But, you know, I'm sat here and talking to you and we've, we're getting through it. We've not got through it. We'll never come through it. But we, yeah. we've learned to live with it now. You know, you know, when I came across your story, it was just like such a, a powerful, like sinking feeling. Um came across me where I, I've I've had um, loved ones die, but to, I couldn't even fathom two, like, two of the closest people in your life in the same week. And I, and it's just been so amazing to see what you've done in reaction to, but I, I guess that the, the, the first question was, was more, and, I, and when I was talking to my dad, my, my dad lost his wife, like my mom, 10 years ago. Okay. And he was actually only talking about grief this week. Right. And he, I said, oh, I was explaining um, part of your story to my dad. And my dad was just like, can you just ask her, how does she, how does she go, get on? Like, how does she go on? You know? Um, and I know, like, there's probably so many facets to that question. But, yeah, can, because you mentioned there's a, a great community where you live. Yeah. I'd love to know what what because i can't even imagine what what you felt like but what what was the the driving force for you to to continue to to persevere if you will 
oh, so many things, but I think the main thing was my love, my love and passion for, for, for Paul and George. Mm-hmm. You know, um, sadly, children do fall ill and die suddenly. You never, ever want it to be your own child, but it sadly happens. But no dad should walk out on his family and never come home because mm-hmm. we just felt completely abandoned. And since the day I lost him, he was the most incredible man when he was here. All he wanted to do was help people. He wanted to care about everybody. And I decided that that's the person I wanted to be and, and to continue to be. So every morning when I'm in bed, and even now, nine years on, my life is good, you know, and I'm not guilty anymore for saying that. I I lie there and I think of them and I think that they have, they can't experience that more from their face and they can't experience those conversations and the incredible things that life has got to offer you. So I then get myself out of bed. Um, and what's really helped me is talking. It's that old cliche of, you know, don't suffer alone, share how you're feeling, especially obviously with mental health and, and bereavement. But since day one, I have talked not just about Paul and George with such love, but also about what happened and the importance of supporting one another. And I think my best friends are still there. They must, you know, they've, they've supported me and heard me talking for years and years and years. But it was important that people knew how I was feeling. Um, it's it's the strangest journey, grief, because everyone thinks it's the tears and the missing people, which is, for me, been the easy part. You know, I still miss them on anniversaries and just days when I don't expect it and, and I cry about them. But what I never experienced was that you you lost yourself. I lost my identity as a mum of three, as a wife. I didn't even recognise myself literally in the mirror. Um, I didn't want to live life. That wasn't because I wanted to, to pass away in any way. It was the fact that life had no meaning to me anymore. And nobody tells you or explains about that really to you. And most of the support I've had to receive, which again, I'm not ashamed to admit, I've had counselling, I've had... I've tried reflexology. I've tried. I've had psychiatric support, which has been incredible. I've been on medication. I um, I'm still on a bit of medication as well for my anxiety. Um, but it's all about bringing it all together. And you know, you can live through such pain. It's just learning to, how to do that, really. Irene, I wanted to ask. Um, one of the key reasons that we uh, uh, Jim and I started this podcast was because, um, like we we found that we Jim and I had gone through a few a few things personally, and we would talk about it. And then we found that when we would talk to other friends, specifically like guy friends, that would help them open up in turn. And, and we realized that maybe there's something there. Um, and <clears throat> this might be the impossible question, but when you talk about your late husband and like how how much of a great man he was. He always wanted to help. He always wanted to care for people, like take care of people. And I think a lot of guys, like whether they're young men or, you know, dads in in, in his case, kind of feel that responsibility that we have to always take care of our friends and this, that, and the other. And, And when we feel like maybe we're failing in that, that comes like as a real hit to our ego, maybe a bit of our pride and, and our own identity. And I wonder, do, do you think that may, maybe was one of the reasons that he, obviously his son is just kind of had this, just, you couldn't even write it almost, just, you know, like you said, in a couple of hours, he's smiling and laughing and then all of a sudden he's passed away. Do you feel like he carried that burden maybe heavier and, and maybe that's why he kind of took, took the decision he took and and to anyone who's listening who maybe feels that way in some way shape or form do you feel like if they kind of expressed those feelings of feeling like you've let them down or feeling mm-hmm. like you haven't delivered as you're supposed to in inverted commas as a man that yeah. maybe you wouldn't you wouldn't go to such a dark place a hundred percent why i lost him a hundred percent you know that weekend we were so close Paul had no, as far as I know, obviously I, I won't ever know, had no mental health issues. And, you know, he was always upbeat, always there for everybody. Obviously that doesn't say anything because he could have been suffering. But as far as I was concerned, there was nothing going on. Um, and that weekend, we were so close. We talked a bit. He showed his emotion, but he kept saying it was his fault. He kept telling me that he'd failed me as his wife and he'd failed our family. He should have taken George to the hospital. He shouldn't have done this. He did this. He just had to find some way of blaming himself. And I kept telling him that wasn't right. It wasn't fair. And even our last words to each other was, he said to me, this is my fault. I failed you. I'm so sorry. And I said to him, please stop saying it. 
it's not fair on any of us because it's not true. And I never saw him again. Mm. Um, and yeah, it, you know, he, there is such pressure on men to feel that they are the provider of our family. And traditionally, you know, you can look back years ago, that's, that is how it's always been. And, and Paul was quite old fashioned in that respect. He was the, the big earner in the family. He was the person who did everything for us. But for him then to carry that burden, he, he just couldn't. And we needed somebody, you know, guilt after you lose somebody. It doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter how they pass away. Guilt is a common factor in, in death. Um, and we needed somebody to tell us that or say to us, you know, <clears throat> everyone grieves differently, but you are going to you know, blame yourself. You are going to feel you're losing your mind. You are going to this, this and this, but that's okay. And we didn't. It didn't matter. I was saying it all the time, but who was I? Who was I to say it? So, yes, I do think that. And, and through our organisation, which I know I'm going to talk about in a bit, excuse me, <clears throat> we're going to talk about in a bit, dads, we don't support as many dads as mums. And that's not because they haven't lost. It's because that they're okay and that they want to provide and look after their families. So we're trying to break down um, that stigma. You know, we do a lot of events and um, dads, we have a rugby team and we have a football team. And we're just developing a cricket team. They don't speak about their child, but they know the person stood next to them is broken inside and that they're not alone. Uh, thanks for that. I, I really appreciate that. And, and I, when, I mean, when Jim told me about your story and then he said that we'd managed to actually get you on, I, I just remember thinking, like, Jim, we always ask each other, like, what the questions are for, for, for the guests and so on. And my question was basically, like, just how? And it sounds like a silly question, but I just don't how I know you have two other kids and maybe they were your kind of inspiration for, 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 for going on. But how, like, how does that not destroy you? Do you know, I mean, into a point where you don't get back up to a point where you're flawed for life. I, mean, I can't I, I commend you for it. Do you know what I mean, and it offers people like you offer great inspiration to other people who are going through something similar. Um, but to like like Jim said, to lose two of your immediate family in the space of five days and both from really unexpected, you know, circumstances is not something that was kind of, you could see coming. Maybe they were suffering with cancer. Yeah. Not that it makes it any easier, but you know what I mean? You could maybe plan for it. This wasn't the case. How, how do you get up the next day and go, I've still got to live here? Um, I've always been a positive person and oh, don't get me wrong. I have been broken and I didn't leave the house for six months. I just couldn't face life. I didn't want to drive. It took me nearly a year to drive my car because it was the last thing that Paul did. Um, and it's funny you say about the children because I could, you know, I'd be rich if I had a pound. <laughs> Every time someone said to me, <coughs> excuse me, um, if someone said to me, you've got to keep going for the children. Well, actually, I didn't want to. You know, I can say that now and I'm not ashamed to say I didn't want to be a mum to two children. I was a mum to three and I wasn't, I wasn't a single mum. I had a husband. I had a family. And actually, I don't ever look at myself as a single mum. I looked at myself as a double mum because I was now a mum and a dad. And I owe everything to my parents and my sister. You know, my mum and dad moved in with me. They lived with me for nearly two years, which when you're 33, that does get quite intense, especially when my mum started looking at what I was wearing when I was going out. And that was when I realised, time for you to go. But <laughs> I was lucky I was so lucky to have so much love around me. And that's why I keep going. And, you know, I didn't want to die. I didn't want to not be here. So I can remember my mum saying to me, and I always tell people this, you know, mothers are always, always right. She said to me, you're living. No, sorry, she said, you're existing. You're not living. And if you are not going to live, you need to make a decision not to be here. But you don't. You want to be here. So you've got to start living. And that's when I thought, I do. And the kids were great, you know, they're now 12 and 13. And I, I think they're quite oblivious to the fact that I didn't feel I was the right, the good enough mum to them for a long time. Because I couldn't take them out. I'd have panic. I couldn't see dads. I couldn't hear the word dad shouted across a park. Couldn't see happy families. But the children had a good life, don't, you know, don't get me wrong. But I then realised about four years ago that I had to just do this. And I loved Paul and I will love him forever. And... And he is, he's with me every single minute of every day. Yeah, and it's funny, it's not funny, it's poignant that you say this because I was actually going to ask you about this. Um, I guess what helps me with my mom's passing is that I do feel that she is with yeah. me in some sense. Um, yeah. And I, I guess I wanted to ask, um, 
was was this what did this week kind of change your opinion or change your perspective on life death and the idea that someone might not be, be physically there but they can still be with you would you have considered that before the passing of, of your son and husband or was yeah, it only I, sorry continue. no 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 yeah like, like you said you know you feel that presence and that's how how you feel that presence is completely individual and up to you um was I a religious person before? I went to church, we got married in a church. Yes, no, not a really strong belief. Have I lost that belief? I'm a bit, if there is a God, I'm a bit annoyed, to be honest. I've got no real opinion. It's not about that for me. It's about, you know, I've still got handprints around the house that I know George left, you know, that I kept. And I've got items of clothing. It took me four years to move Paul's jacket off the hook downstairs because I wanted him to be part of our life still. Um, you know, people say about feathers and robins and all these different things. Believe what you want. You know, no one's there to judge you if it helps you every day. And obviously a big part of our lives have been stars. So when George died, it took a long time for us to summon, you know, a good few days before we told Holly and Isaac that their brother had died. We didn't have a book. No one gave us any information on how to talk about death to children, which, again, I just think is incredible, really, when you think, you know, they should have. Um, so we said, and I knew from teaching that you used the word died. You had to with children, you know, not gone to sleep or passed away. It meant nothing to children. So we used the word died. And then I just said that when you're alive, you have a body with a bundle of sparkle in your tummy. And when you die, your body, you don't need anymore. But actually, that bundle of sparkle is thrown into the sky and becomes a star. And you will see dad, you will see George. Obviously, I had to then explain this a few days later about their daddy whenever you want to. Now, they're 12 and 13. All they care about is Xbox and uh, TikTok at the moment. But for very many years, it really meant something to us. And I, I believe it. Many in the evenings, I'll sit outside and look up. I know they're not there, but I feel them close. And, you know, we have photos around the house still. It's important that they're part of our family still, and they will always be part of our family. But yeah, I I feel them close, and and I truly believe Paul gives me my strength. Absolutely, that's beautiful, and I appreciate that so much. Like another reason why I'm so like grateful for to have you here is because I I do think you you're adding a lot to the the discussion around uh, bereavement and grief and this process and. One thing that you mentioned maybe a few minutes ago, which I think, as you said, never gets enough um, credence, I think, is the idea that not only do you lose these people, but you lose the sense of self. Um, can you tell me how did you go about rebuilding? Or like, can it, yeah, I'm interested in, in, in that kind of whole, was it a rediscovery process or was it, do you still think there are significant parts of you of that old self, but also just there is just a new part of you, almost like a new, a new life as well? Oh, oh, oh absolutely. Like I'm in the, in the, I'm currently trying to write a book about my experiences and my journey, but I'm finding it so hard because there is so much that's happened over the last few years. And um, I've always been positive, like I said earlier, but gosh, it's changed me. It's changed me for the better. I'd like to think I've always been a nice person, but I'm far more tolerant now, I think. Um, if my house is a mess, would I, now I'm just like, no, I'd rather just go out with the children. Um, just change your priorities about what's important in life. Um, you know, don't hold grudges and just, just get on. Um, I threw myself, after the boys died, I threw myself into the charity, which I, I know, you know we're going to talk about, but in a in quite a bad way I think I was so I was so passionate about this not happening to another family I went into this massive like became a massive workaholic and, and obsessed with this charity and for five years that's all I did and that's all that mattered because it was for Paul and George Paul and George and then suddenly one morning I could I just couldn't get out of bed I couldn't feel my hands my feet I thought I had some kind of stroke or I had a complete breakdown and I saw the doctor I started seeing somebody then um, like a formal sort of psychiatric support and that's when and he and I worked for nearly a year just trying to find myself and part of it was about acceptance and also part of it was about it wasn't my fault because since it happened 
and I still do, and it doesn't matter what you or anyone says, I will always blame myself and an element of it will always be with me about blaming myself that this happened because as a mother, naturally I should have known my son was ill. And it doesn't matter how many medics tell me that actually you don't always see these symptoms. I should have saved him. And then with Paul, obviously the guilt that majority of people have where they lose someone through suicide is that I should have known. Um, so I felt a failure. I felt like, and I felt I was a failure to my parents because I was putting them through this. I felt I was a failure to my sister. I felt I was a failure to my friends because all I wanted to do was talk about about Paul. And and when some of those friends walk away because they can't cope with it, that's because you're a bad person because you're not a nice person anymore. So your the conflict in your head is then where I, I just couldn't cope with life anymore. So by having support and understanding that. You know, maybe it's not my problem, it's theirs. And just having an understanding of the person you've become, um, I am in a lot better place. And and it, it it's, it's hard, hard work. But everyone's different. And I think you also have to understand that. And, and one message anyone listening today is, if you haven't coped like I have, that's absolutely fine. And, I'm aware, and because I haven't coped like you doesn't mean it's right or wrong. And everyone must cope differently with the way they want to cope because... Again, part of my of me now is is not judging. You know, if someone had said something to me about something years ago, I might have gone, can't believe they did that. Well, no, everyone has to deal with this in the way that they can survive. Ren, I, I wanted to ask, um, I think a, a common theme um, when people uh, go through a grieving process is uh, the idea of loyalty. And so Jim's talking there kind of about the evolution and, and trying to like, almost redefine yourself or find again your your identity but I, I think sometimes we or at least I sometimes used to see it as like a slight on the person who's passed away like oh no I've got to stay true to them and who they were and blah blah because if I don't then it's like I'm I'm, I'm offending them and I'm and I'm uh, dishonoring them in, in, in death which is like the scene is the worst thing you could possibly do and I wanted to know how, did you ever come across guilt when you were trying to not move on but move through it so when you, maybe you said today how your mum would uh, judge you for what you'd wear on your night when you're going on a night out, but like maybe whenever you started, even the the conception of dating again, did that then was that then paired with tremendous pangs of guilt uh, when you were I don't know when you were celebrating kind of momentous occasions with maybe your your kids, knowing that George wouldn't have those occasions now again, was that paired with guilt? And if so, how how did you kind of overcome that feeling of guilt? Gosh. Get- Guilt's played a massive, massive part in my journey, and I know it plays a massive part in, in, in many people's journeys because I didn't eat, I didn't even want to eat food after after Paul died because he would never eat again and I shouldn't be eating because that means I was nourishing myself and that I was going to be gaining strength. Um, I wouldn't drink alcohol for a long time because that was fun and relaxing, and I always, you know, that. Um, but Dating is it was 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 mad actually because you know I, I knew quite quickly after losing losing Paul rightly or wrongly I didn't want to be on my own and I didn't want the children at two and three to be on their own and I'd like to think that maybe one day that that would change and I did date a couple of people but I was hard work I can put my hand up and say you know I obviously wasn't ready for it I wasn't ready to let go and the guilt was just too consuming but two years ago I got married to an amazing person and was was the way was I guilt felt guilt on the wedding day I didn't because I don't feel I don't feel like I've dishonored Paul I feel like he's no longer here and Craig my new husband understands I've got two husbands one is no longer with me and one is here not replaced Paul they're so different in many ways and I actually sewed my wedding ring from Paul into my wedding dress when I married Craig and Craig knew um, I wear his wedding ring. I've worn it since after the funeral. I'll never take his wedding ring off. It's on the other hand. And I've got my new wedding ring on this hand. Um, that's a bit extreme. He doesn't play a big part in our marriage every day. I think Craig probably would then have issues with it. But um, I, it is hard. You know, the first time I went on holiday and smelled sun cream, I've got a real thing about sun cream and smells because I have got PTSD. Smells are a big thing about it. So I used to go on holiday and wouldn't use sun cream for the first couple of days because I just couldn't handle that smell and felt guilty of being on holiday. Um, but I take, I don't anymore, but I used to take his swimming trunks with me and roll them in the bottom of my bag because I wanted to take a part of him with me, um, but realised actually he's in my heart and they come everywhere with me. So guilt's massive, huge. You know, it took me a long time to laugh and smile 
and even now sometimes I, I do think people a lot of it's around what people perceive and expect so I would laugh and then suddenly go oh my god they're looking at me they're thinking I'm laughing and I'm supposed to be a brief widow and I should be in black probably and I shouldn't be out dancing and generationally my mum for instance for many years I used to, one day a friend said come do you want to come out tonight and I was like I might and it was the anniversary of Paul's death and, and my mum was like you can't do that you can't go out on the anniversary of Paul's death so but she in a way she was I got it but I also think now she understands that he came I was thinking about him all night so it doesn't it does you haven't got to sit there but yeah it's a great question and I again very common and and there's very little you can do because you do you do feel guilty for living and breathing for a long time it seems sorry I don't I don't know if I'm interpreting this correctly but it's almost like you're gonna feel the guilt but don't feel guilty about feeling the guilt you know or like don't yes. don't judge the, the guilty feeling accept that you feel this right now and there may be a time where you don't feel that in the future yeah oh absolutely and there's a lot of things like that I think a lot of things are accepting it and knowing that maybe it's not right or it's something that you know you can get guilty about but actually knowing that it's okay it's all okay to, to, he would want me to, and it's a cliche, and I've never really gone, oh, Paul would want me to go out and get drunk tonight, and Paul would want me to meet someone else. But actually, he's not here anymore. And however you look at it, he left us that day. And I, he would never have expected me and the children not to have a life of, of anything. Um, and the day I got married to Craig, it was it was crazy. Rainbows played quite a big part in our life as well, like double rainbows because of Paul and George. And me and the children and Craig, it was raining a bit. And we went out to the back of where we got married and we looked out. And these two, and I've got beautiful, two big rainbows appeared across us. And going back to what you said earlier about feeling them close, you know, it was raining, rainbows appear, but two. And, and I just thought, he's okay about this. You know, and also you, you look for others as well so like Paul's friends love Craig you know and that means the world to me as well because actually that's part of Paul saying he's all right yeah he's all right Mm. yeah he's not he's very Welsh though and supports Wales in rugby and Craig uh, Craig's Welsh and Paul was Irish and yeah um, with a bit of English thrown in, but we'll ignore that bit. Oi, oi, oi. So um, when it comes to rugby, what's really great is that my son, and this is what's so strange, he was only two when, when Paul died, didn't know much, doesn't remember much, but is obsessed with Ireland, Ireland rugby. He wants to play for Ireland, doesn't want to support Wales. All he cares about is Ireland. Craig's <laughs> Welsh, in his Welsh. I'm sort of divided in the middle because of Paul and everything. So it's brilliant banter. Um, <laughs> So yeah, but, but Isaac, I just want to play for Ireland. That's all he wants to do. Oh, I love that. <laughs> he'll, he'll he'll get a lot of fans on the podcast. I tell you that much. That's it. Uh, all of our fans are Irish, so uh, oh, are all they? Be, yeah, they'll all be pumping their fists here in that. Tell <laughs> you. Well, if Brian O'Driscoll's listening, please <laughs> just send us send me something because he's obsessed with him, and he's just it's weird. And that's again going back to Paul being close. Um, he, he didn't ever talk about rugby with Paul and I've never told him much about it that's all he wants to do the only downer is Paul was a massive Liverpool supporter <laughs> and Isaac will not support Liverpool and wants to support Man United oh. now how bad is that that's bad <laughs> <laughs> he's, got it, he's got it all twisted there <laughs> but, definitely but, um, I, I, what, I don't want this is going to sound like an awful question now because we're just coming on a light spot but you know you said that the kids were were really young, two and three, uh, when it when it all happened. And I mean, how can you comprehend? It's hard enough to comprehend stuff like that at our age, let alone when you're like two or three years old. But and you said that they're now like twelve and thirteen, and all they care about is Xbox and TikTok. But and I'm sure you're aware that there's going to come a day where they come of an age where they kind of want to, you know, they want to delve back into it and start to mm-hmm. ask some real hard questions. And I think, and maybe this is just me speaking from ignorance here and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think maybe it might be easier to accept the passing of their brother because it's just one of those things where you go, what can you do? It's an illness. It's nobody's fault. Not that, you know, and, and it is what it is and you accept it as hard as it may be. But how would you, how, when that, when that time comes when they ask about their dad and they maybe have a feeling of like, did he not love us enough? Like to carry on because you carried on mum and you were going through the same stuff. So 
why did he let us down? Why did he leave us? Weren't we enough for him? You know, all of those types of questions. Because I have some friends who, who unfortunately, they're, it's always their dads, not their mothers, but unfortunately their dads have also passed away through suicide. And they had, when it when they got to about 18 years old, that's when those questions would start yeah. to creep up. And I always thought it must be such a difficult question to answer as a mother or the widow. How, how I mean, I'm sure you've played it through in your mind. How, how do you think that would go? God, you know, you know parents is, it's, parenting is hard anyway. You know, we don't know what goes on in our children's minds. It's trial and error. There's no guidebook. Well, there's lots of guidebooks, but they don't work because the kids are so different. Um, so when, when, when they died, they knew Paul, well, they knew George was ill. Um, and when Paul died, I'd made the decision not to tell them what happened. Um, you know, I was informed by professionals. They need to know everything now. And I made the decision, no, because I still couldn't comp- comprehend what happened and I'm not telling my children. So I built bricks. I sort of built blocks as time went on. So one day they were like, so how did he die again? And I said, well, he went out um, and he fell and he banged his head and they couldn't make him better again. Because when Paul took his own life by fall, diving off of, of, of a fired up bridge, motorway bridge. So I sort of did that and that, that was enough for them. And then they did something else and I told them a bit more. And I told them a bit more. And then in 2017, I appeared on a BBC documentary called Mind Over Marathon, which was about people running the London Marathon um, who had mental health um, issues, which was an incredible experience. And it was going to be all over national BBC TV. And I thought, right, now's the day, now's the time. You know, they came in from school, they were like chatting, and I said, oh, can we have a little chat? And that's the first time I told them. And I told them what, you know, that he, he took his own life. Um, my kids are amazing. My son was like, ah, and my daughter, never said, that makes sense now. It never made sense that he fell over and banged his head. And I thought, bloody hell, perhaps I should have said something earlier. But in my mind, and I still stand by that. I never lied. Never, ever lied to children about anything. But I just didn't tell them the truth. So they know everything now. And also, remember, Google, and they've got, they're on their internet all the time. They probably know more than I've even ever told them. Um, and we talk very much about mental health. So they, you know, my tablets are on my side of my bed. They know I take them because some days are really hard for mummy. Um, you know, we've got friends, some family who've suffered with their mental health. And I've said to them, you know, about physical and mental health. And I think schools and education is a lot more out there than, you know, I'm a lot older than you two, I'm sure. Um, but when we were at school, nothing, there was no focus on the mind. It was all about the body. So they understand that. And with through the charity, they know other people it's happened to. And I think, I think I've done okay. It's trial and error. They're happy. As I said, they're happy, great kids. But yeah, there will be more. And what was really comforting for me was when we had the inquest from the coroner over their death, we we eventually found out that George had pneumonia and that's why he died. So again, we're lucky because some families never find out how their child dies. With Paul, what was really interesting was it was um, the outcome of the inquest was accidental death. They truly believe that he didn't leave the house that morning to take his own life, that this was just something that happened. His mind flipped he was traumatised, you know, um, and I've got that in black and white. And even though I know, the children know, everyone knows what happened that day, I can say to the children one day, he didn't leave us, you know, he didn't choose to leave us. This was something he would never have wanted to make life difficult for us. People who take their own lives don't make a conscious decision anyway. I truly believe that. Someone said to me early on, you know, when people walk out and have a heart attack, their heart just stops and they've gone. Whereas a similar thing happens to the brain. And that brought me comfort at the time, which is what part of what I said to the children. So, yeah, I think you're right. They are going to have questions about things. And, for instance, Paul's family, they withdrew very much from our family after we lost the boys. And they know a bit about that. But one day they'll probably want to know more. And I've got that hopefully hopefully ready to come. Thanks for that, Ryan. I guess this this could be a nice transition towards all of your fantastic work with the charity. Um, and I guess this question would be, obviously it's different for everyone, as you say, and it's a different circumstance, but I'm sure um, what you're working with is the idea that there are at least core fundamentals that you think are need to be um, involved in the process of a healthy grief or healthy bereavement. And 
I guess, yeah, this would be great for us to learn more about the charity, but also in your opinion, like what would you have loved to have that you didn't have and what you're trying to provide for, for other families now? So again, lots and lots of things, but when, um, when Georgie died, they, they asked if he wanted his handprints taken, if he wanted parts of his curls taken, which, you know, I just, um, I just nod, you know, and say, yes, we did, but they, it was very rushed. It was thrown into, um, a conversation they did it all etc we had nowhere to sit there was nowhere to sit so when they were trying to resuscitate him when um after he passed away we we was just sat with other people around us in beds and our little boy and we walked out with nothing you know you leave your child in the hospital we had a list of phone numbers to ring that we rang and some of them were even out of date and the others were still waiting to hear back so 10 years on we got nothing from those phone numbers um and you just want someone to say, you are going to, as I said earlier, you're going to blame yourself. You are going to feel like you're cracking up. You're going to need this, this and this. And it's about choice and just being informative. We didn't know where our little boy was going to go. Was he going to stay in the hospital? Was he going to go? Was he going to have a postmortem? <clears throat> Excuse me. We didn't know anything. So you just need to be informed and, and, and made to feel like you matter. You know, a lot of my psychiatric and, and mental things have been about no one cares about me. And that's all stems back from us leaving that hospital and, and hearing from nobody. You know, I have three children under three and had so much support from health visitors and midwives and baby classes and books and packs. And when your child dies, nothing. You know, you don't get a phone call. You don't get a book, nothing. And that's and that's what I decided to change. That's what I decided Um that families deserve better, um, especially those who lose children. So that's where I started then throwing myself into into the charity. Can you talk to us about the progress of the charity and, and like what were the initial steps like with difficulties and how did it look like in the first few months and years and how does it look like now? Yeah, so a, a couple of my friends and my sister, I just said there should be a room in that hospital for people to have privacy. It doesn't matter how old the person who passes away is. We just started getting our community to fundraise for us because I wasn't leaving the house really at this point. Um, and then when I got a bit stronger, I just started going to hospitals and knocking on the doors of A&E and just saying, can I see the person who's in charge? Um, having a conversation with them, always making them cry because they could see, they'd been there. They'd seen families like me and knowing that they leave with nothing. Um I didn't go to the top dogs because even though what they do is probably, you know, is amazing, I needed to see the look of the people. I need to look in the eyes of the people who see these bereaved families every single day. Um, I came up, came up with a little memory box idea that when a child died, nurses haven't got the time to, to go around looking for bits and pieces. So we put a box together with handprint kits and little bags for the hair with little elephants in. And one, well, the idea was leaving your child in the hospital on their own. You never leave a child on their own. So we put a little elephants in the box. So one cuddly elephant is tucked in with the child after they've died and one stays in the box. So there's a link to the child they've left behind. Um, and then bang, you know, it was me as a volunteer for two, three years. I did it. I used quite a lot of my savings. Didn't matter. I I loved it. And then I realised, oh, my God, this there's actually something in this. I can't even tell you the amount of letters I had from other families who'd heard my story, but also from professionals and police officers who couldn't cope with their jobs anymore because they knew they couldn't do enough for families. So I took on a sort of like an admin person. We did it out of a corner of a room in a friend's office for free. And now, about five years on now, really, since we really got going, we are a charity that works across the whole of Wales. I've got 12 members of staff. I've got a head office. And we're supporting thousands and thousands of families every day who lose a child or a young adult up to the age of 25. That's that's really beautiful. And I think, and I'm not too uh, spiritual or religious, but I do feel like, I don't know what it is, but some, some, I mean, I know religious people told me that like God doesn't give you a problem that you can't handle. I'm not sure how much I believe that because sometimes I think he can keep his problems. But I do feel like there's something to the the thought of you know you wouldn't have ever done probably this work that you're doing with this charity that's helping thousands of people and if you expand it further maybe through the uk potentially millions you know and 
as much as as painful as it is, it's come from something so awful as losing your your son and then your husband. The fact that you are now you're able to to go through that process to then become who you are now that then helps people. I really think there's something to that, and it's helped me with my own personal issues is one of the reasons i started well not one is the reason me, jim and i started the podcast because we both went through this and like you said it kind of makes these awful times do make you a better person because you're not so insulated anymore you realize there's like real shit things going on and like it's up to you to yeah. try and help others not go through or if they're going to go through the same shit go through it a little bit better than you did do you know what i mean and and yeah. I think it's really, really, really important what you just said about policemen and, and you know, these people who we see as uniforms, whether that's a nurse, a doctor, policeman, whatever. And, you know, they go through this maybe even daily potentially. And it's kind of, it's just for us, it's like a once in a lifetime traumatic event. That hope some people it never happens to other people. We know people it's happened to and other people it's firsthand, but for them, it's like, it's almost expected it's part of their job and i i really i really commend you as well for for trying to help them as well not just the grieving families but these people because they go through on on the daily and and it's not to say that it's a number but maybe and jim's jim at the moment he's um volunteering at a hostel where he you know he sees some people going through some real hard times in life and one of the the things that jim and i've spoken about and jim said is he notices himself becoming slightly less emotional a bit more hardened to these stories simply because he has to it's like it's a war of attrition and if he doesn't he won't make it in the host like he'll be of no use so you have to kind of calcify to some extent and i feel like that's what happens with these nurses these doctors and so on but then what happens is like you said you feel like you've been left behind and and i feel like if we can help them then they can help us better in turn and i think what you're doing is really just commendable do what they can't be forgotten you know, um, <coughs> sorry, I don't know what's wrong with me today. Um, they can't be forgotten, you know, because without them, we wouldn't have a police service or an NHS, you know. And I think the night Georgie died, they cried around his bed. You know, they didn't sob. They didn't, over, you know, go overboard, but they cried because they cared. And I think they've got a fine line. They've got a really difficult position because they have to be hardened in some way to be able to do their job. You know, what they see every day is is just, you can't cope with that if you allow that to get to you. However, <clears throat> when they are then dealing with a the family, they then have to treat them as if it's the only time they've ever been through it. And, you know, we've, I've, through, through the charity, through Tuish, um, I have met staff who, you know, that they're obviously that focused, they've done it for so long, they are forgetting that this family have probably never been through this before and that they need to be far more human about it. And they've probably got so many rules and regulations these days, you know, but it's all right to touch their arm. You know, they're probably not allowed to do that anymore. You know, I'm a hugger. I'm a terrible hugger. I'm a real tactile person. Um, People hugged me that night, and that meant so much to me. So I think our frontline staff, and it doesn't have to be frontline staff. It could be the cleaner in a ward who's bonded with a child who dies, through her professional capacity there, is bonded and is going to be affected. So actually, as part of our charity, we do support anyone who's affected. So that obviously is families. It's also anyone who witnesses it. So obviously, we have people who perhaps walk their dog and find a 15-year-old hanging in the woods. Now, they can't go home and, and, and switch off from that. So we will support them, even if they don't know the child or young adult. But we will also offer anything that we do to them to professionals so they can get counselling and support through us as well. We need to keep them safe. They're not robots. And it's, yeah, it's it's such a difficult balance because I guess only just from my experience, you're, it's like, yeah, you, you can only, you're trying your best to connect and be there for that person, but you know that very soon there's going to be a similar scenario in a few minutes or in an hour or so. So it's 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 like it's an impossible position and never like i always had deep respect for nurses and doctors and policemen but also like you said like these people and this happens unfortunately relatively often where people are just don't know the people and they come across something like this and it's so amazing that you're doing this and you know there might be people listening who don't even know that this service is available i know just just to clarify you you do work within wales but it is also in england and scotland or not yet. No, not at the moment. So okay. the charity to wish upon a star, it's called. Have a look anyway, because what we're doing, what we're doing at the moment, we've hit a bit of a 
we've almost done what we want to do in Wales, um, which I'm super proud to say, although it's still not quite perfect, and I'm a perfectionist. And then it's thinking about, do we extend the age range from 25? Because at the moment, that's all we can do. Um, or do we look at exploring? And we have actually looked at um, looking at Belfast at one point. We were looking at piloting it, always looking for pilot opportunities, but also just awareness. We do a lot of training with workplaces, you know, especially with COVID now, people are bereaved and, and colleagues just don't know how to handle that. So we do training courses, you know, all over, we can do that all over the world. And it's, you know, it's not necessarily relevant then just to Wales. So yeah, but also we could have families from Ireland or, or abroad, you know, Spain, anywhere in Wales on holiday. And if their child or young adult dies in Wales, we will give that family everything, even if they don't, you know, they haven't, they don't reside in Wales. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, I I wanted to ask your definition. Um, I think uh, well, me and Seb will just confer whether or not we're, what we're going to title this podcast, but I wanted to title it Post-Traumatic Growth. Yes. Did you read my article? Did you read the article? I read it? the article. I would love for a, for your definition because I guess for some people post traumatic growth is seems a bit oxymoronish. They're not sure what's going on. Um, yeah, can you give us your definition and yeah, yeah, or if it's possible. <laughs> You've probably gathered I can't sum things up very well. I like to talk because I'm a bit long-winded. But um, oh no, we love it. <laughs> I don't know. You know, it's survive. It's surviving the journey and or living living with loss. You know, I, I've lived with loss, but it hasn't destroyed me. You know, it's flourished sounds far too positive. It's not like that, which is why I've never heard of post-traumatic growth. And when someone contacted me, it, it sums it sums up completely. Um, my journey, you know, I've become, I've grown through bereavement, which is, you know, when you look back and if you'd have said to me, this was going to happen to me, I would have said to you straight away, well, I won't survive that. But actually I have survived it. And if not anything, I've come out a better, stronger person as a result of it. And I'll always be proud of my boys. I, and it's not about forgetting, you know, certainly not about forgetting. Thank you. Thank you. I, I'm sure I don't, um, I guess I think listeners will be hearing this and they think, well, you know, this reminds me a bit of uh, Victor Frankl's book, A Man's Search for Meaning, in which he was uh, one of the people in Auschwitz in the, in, in the camps, but he was one of, you know, I think it was only like one in 200 people survived or whatever. He was one of the people that survived, but he wrote this book articulating what, what helped him through and um, leaving the camp and, and like trying to move on with life, having seen like his whole family die, his friends in awful circumstances was that he, he thought, well, there is something that I can give here as a result of my experience. And then he went on, I think he was lecturing for decades in sociology and psychology about this, about, about what you can learn from these awful experiences that seem like, Oh, I don't want to, I don't want to live anymore if this is what's happening. But he, but he, in the book, The Man's Search for Meaning, he's saying this, he's saying, you ultimately have the, the ability to choose what, how, you wanna, how you wanna use this experience, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and that's not to say to you know, get over the grief or nothing like that, but there is an opportunity in this grief for you to grow if. Mm -hmm. um, and I was wondering if, if you weren't familiar with his work, was there another person that kind of inspired you in this push that you now are touching thousands of people? No, and I have heard of, of, of him and no, you know, my only inspiration is it was Paul. You know, I, I didn't have any type of business background. I didn't use email or spreadsheets or business plans or budgets, um, but I, I wear my heart on my sleeve and I, I just reached out to people and asked people if they could help me and they have and you know, to call myself a CEO, I, I actually hate using it. I get told off for not using it, but it's, I'm the founder. That's how I describe myself. Um, but no, the, my inspiration has been has been Paul, although the other inspiration is is other bereaved people around me because we're all doing okay. We're, we're all literally surviving against the odds. You know, when you lose a child, you know, how do you come to, to terms with that? Um, I had one year with Georgie, you know, some of our families have had, and it doesn't make it any less painful, but, you know, some, you know, 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 18-year-olds, 25-year-olds, just gone, 
in a heartbeat. So they inspire me every day. Um, I don't know, life, you've got to keep going. And, and I also feel that this may have happened to me for a reason. That reason, I will never really know. But now time's going on. That reason was maybe that I now can can help others. And as I said, even though everyone's different, you know, I've learned a lot about bereavement. And, you know, if someone who has been recently bereaved, I like to reach out to them and go and see them and just say, let them talk to me so they know they're not on their own. And I just want them to know that what they're feeling is is pretty normal, if there is a normal. Um, and that's sort of my, that's my thing in life now. I'm Bereavement's a huge part of my life. And I know it sounds a bit doom and gloom, but it's actually flipping the bereavement to make it positive. That's amazing stuff, honestly. <laughs> it's so fantastic to hear this. And I'm so happy there are people like you doing this work. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for having me to be able to share my, my experiences and story. No, I'm sure this is going to help a lot of people, honestly. Uh, before we let you go, Irene, I want to ask, um, who who helps the helper or how does the helper help herself? What is it that you, uh, that you do? Because, you know, we were talking about people in uniforms and how they, you know, this is maybe on the daily for them. They have these terrible stories. But maybe inadvertently you have now become one of those people where – you know, it was maybe this was just going to be a one, hopefully just a one-time thing in your life, a real traumatic event, and that was it. But you've now, through your own kind of dedication and will, you've put yourself in a position where you're gonna you hear these stories on the daily, and you, and you're not only hearing them, but you're trying to help these people get over them. So, how do you make sure that the well is never empty? Good question. Um, <clears throat> I could give you the answer I should be giving you, or I could give you the true answer, which I'm sure all of us are guilty for. <laughs> you know, um, self care is not about being selfish. And I think lockdown taught me that. So up to lockdown, I was 100 miles an hour. And then when lockdown came, the first couple of weeks was tough. You know, everything stopped, didn't it? But actually, I thrived. And through lockdown, I've grown because I've actually had time to read a book, not one about grief, which I always do, a proper, you know, fictional book. I've had time to get into exercise more, which is a big part of my mental health support is exercising, riding bikes, running, things like that. But spending time with my kids and appreciating what we've got and seeing so much sadness out there in the world, um, knowing that actually I'm still quite a lucky person to have the life I've got today. So, yeah, looking after myself is a big one. It is difficult. I do speak to my friends. I do say to them when I'm down, I'm very open, like my husband knows if I'm having a bad day. Um, but I'm also always looking for something else. I'm always looking for the next thing. So I... I've just um, launched a podcast myself talking to my parents. So I've got 15 episodes talking to bereaved parents, which is, I wouldn't say it's the most uplifting podcasts, but to speak to so many parents about how the different ways that they've been dealing with it has been pretty amazing. Um, I'm in the middle of writing a book. Once that's done, I need to, I always need something. Um, and that's quite a new thing for me. And that's part of my, my process. So I'm jumping out of a plane in September, which I'm in total denial about. Let's not mention <laughs> that. Moving on. I'm, Kiliman- I'm doing Kilimanjaro in, in February. Wow. The, the 10th anniversary of the boy's death, I'll be on, this, on the mountain. Um, I have to find things. And that's part of my, I don't like to slow down. Rightly or wrongly, if I slow down, I worry I won't start up again because things will hit me again. So I, I'm not saying that's the right thing to do. You should stop. You should look after yourself. But my, my thing is just keep going, keep going, keep going. And, and I do look after myself more, though, because of, of I think, what we've learned over the last 15 months. I, I was just going to ask, like, to play the devil's advocate. Um, you know, we've had we've had some real amazing guests on here, and I can just, like, hear some of their voice in the back of my head being like, is, is, is that productive or is that running away from the grief? Is that running away from those demons? And, I mean, maybe that's out of question. Out of, I shouldn't be asking those questions, but I had you know- to. I had to ask, do you, feel, do, you, yeah, do you feel like, like, I mean, you kind of said there, you feel like if you, if you did slow down, maybe you won't get back up again. And do you feel like there's, you've got that to kind of overcome to, is that, that's something that you're working towards to be like, I I want to work towards a point where I feel like I don't have to go up Kilimanjaro to be, do you, I mean, I can sit in it and I can be not comfortable with it, but do you know, I'm, you know what I'm trying to get at? No, definitely. And I think, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's not healthy all the time. Definitely not. But I think I've got to a good balance now before. Everything I did was for Paul and George. I would be climbing Kilimanjaro because I had to do it for Paul and George because they died right. and they should be here and I should be here. Yeah. And then if I failed, I would have really 
hit rock bottom. Whereas yeah. now I don't do it for that. I, I've always been a busy person. I've always been an organiser anyways. But now I just, I've just got a new thing of life. I don't want to sit here on a Sunday afternoon the kids are out with their mates doing nothing. You know, I, I go out and, and if I've got to do something... And I like to have something to look forward to. So you're right. I think some days when I'm having a bad day, I'm like, right, I've got to go on today. You know, that's not healthy. But a lot of the time now, it's just the new me. I mm. want to live life. Yeah, you know, yeah. We, every day we get at least one death into our charity. We normally get about 25 a month of just children dying suddenly in Wales. You know, if that doesn't give you enough to keep reaching for the stars and just to keep pushing for life and just following your dreams, what, you know, what will? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, perfect answer, really perfect answer. And seeing yeah. as we are recording on a Saturday morning, um, I don't want to keep you from running up <laughs> some uh, some hills there in, in Wales or whatever it may be. Well, so I'm unless- not saying I don't enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> um but um actually before before we let you go um you know you said you're starting the podcast you've obviously got the charity which even though it's not in england i i I heard of it um so you're making waves anyway uh but for people who maybe who aren't aware of kind of what it is you do or where they or people just want to find more information be that through the podcast or some of the articles you've written or whatever um can you just kind of like plug yourself shamelessly (laughs) shamelessly yeah Um, we've got a website, www.2wishuponastar, it's number two, twishuponastar.org. You'll find out all the information on there. Um, also Facebook, social media, podcasts called You, Me and the Elephant in the Room, because obviously people don't want to talk about bereavement. Um, as I said, it's, it's pretty hard hitting, but if you're interested in this sort of aspect, it, it really is really informative and, and, and pretty amazing, really, what, they, what the families are like. Um, and just get in touch if you want anything through to us, you know, that there, or if you, you know, would love me to come and speak at any point. I'm, I, I love it, as you can see. So, you know, just remember if you're suffering, you know, even if you can't use to wish, there are many organisations. First stop, get your GP um, and, and just don't suffer alone because there are so many people out there suffering as well. And, and, and that will help you. So um, thank you so much, both of you, for having me as well. You know, it's great to have an opportunity like this. No, absolute pleasure for us, honestly. Yeah, really. I'm so grateful for you, uh, for, for you to come on, for for you to for the work that you're doing, and um, and just just the last thing that like I me- I meant to bring up, but it kind of got lost in the conversation. Where um, the idea that you didn't feel guilty about feeling good, and I I feel I like sometimes I feel like that with my dad still to this day. That yeah. Uh, like the grieving process in Ireland is kind of oh yeah I mean I'm a, even if it's years after we're kind of cautious about the possibility of saying that I feel great today or like I love life today because in some way it might come back to the to someone thinking that they're not thinking of this person who passed away yeah. you know and uh, it was it's just lovely to hear you like bring forth this attitude of that here like I'm I'm gonna feel I'm going to feel sad some days. I'm going to feel grieving some days, but I'm also going to feel great some days. And to kind of like me and Sebra always trying to like destigmatize these things that are just commonplace. And unfortunately that is commonplace. People thinking, Oh no, I, I can't love my life. Can I, if I've lost yeah. this person and this, but, but we can, and we can also grieve and it, it does, it's not a either or. Absolutely not. And I think, you know, people who judge you for this have never been through it. You know, what do they expect? They expect you to stay in, wear black and cry every time you see them. And yeah, for the first few months, if anyone asked me how I was, I felt, well, I've got to say I'm not good because they're going to think you heartless cow if, you, if you're showing it, you know. And, and even at the funeral, I didn't I didn't cry at the funeral at all. And, you know, several people close to me were like, you've got to, you've got to stop crying. What's wrong with you? You know, why aren't you crying? And I, I get that, but I could, for A, I couldn't cry at that point. But actually, you've got to, otherwise I may as well follow Paul off that bridge and I'm not going to. So if I'm here, he is with me every single minute of every day and every breath I take. Mm. But, te- you know, your dad now, you know, you said 10 years ago, this has nothing to do with forgetting your mum. You know, he, how can he ever forget, ever? You know, if anything, I think it gets stronger. Um, but live life, live life, because it's so short. It could be it could be over in, in a flash for any of us. Beautiful. 
Well, I think that's the perfect place to leave it, really. I mean, just a, a perfect place to go out. So thank you so much, um, guys. Thanks. For everyone who, who, who's really interested and wants to kind of follow Rian and her journey more, we'll put all the links and all the everything else in the show notes so you can find it all there. And just thank you again for coming to giving us your Saturday morning. We really, really appreciate it. No worries. Thank you both so much. Have a nice day. Hi, guys. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave a five-star review if you haven't already. Every review helps us climb the podcast charts so that even more of you can listen to our amazing guests. We really appreciate the support. Remember to tune in next week. But until then, keep safe and have a good one.